computer will introduce Macintosh and you'll see why 1984 won't be like 1984 some of you may recognize that famous commercial it's known as perhaps the greatest commercial of all time it aired during the Super Bowl in 1984 the year I was born and it promised that with the coming of the Macintosh computer, that there would be this new liberation of humanity. A new day would dawn. Now, the reason why that commercial is seen is, is, is so famous is because it was, it's gripping. It, it tapped into something that, in a very deep and visceral level, all of us feel. Which that there's some sense, on some level in which we experience captivity in our lives. It could be on a spiritual level, it could be circumstantial, it could be physical, it could be systemic, societal. And the sense that there is a need for liberation. There's a, libera a need for liberation from captivity, from bondage, from being used, from being exploited, from being manipulated, from our lives being driven, in some sense, our, our free will being overwhelmed, compelled, controlled, driven. Now, I figured when I showed that commercial at the beginning, you would also chuckle at the end. Because at the same time, the idea, the, 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 the idea is who really can liberate? And, and we kind of laugh when we think, oh, a computer can liberate us, right? We kind of chuckle at it. But it still taps into that deep sense that we have that it would take a miracle, something supernatural even, to truly set us free. This is why we are going to be in Exodus, why we are beginning a series in this book. Exodus gives the template, the kind of conceptual uh, categories that the Bible is going to use throughout to describe the liberation from captivity that God promises in the gospel. The liberation from spiritual captivity, deliverance from even manipulation and the societal things around us that captivate us and hold us in bondage. There's a commentator, and he, he wrote this about the book of Exodus. He said, if an earnest evangelist had asked an Old Testament Israelite, are you redeemed? The answer would have been an immediate yes. And if our good evangelist had persisted, how do you know? The answer probably would have not been a personal testimony, but a national epic. 
the story of the Exodus. For the first and strongest use of the language of redemption in the Bible is applied to the Exodus. See, an Old Testament Israelite wouldn't have, and if, if you're around church circles or, or if you're a Christian, uh, then you know that oftentimes if you ask a Christian, you know, what, how are you saved? How are you liberated? We just song, or sang a song about freedom and being set free. We'd usually give a testimony about how God had impacted our individual lives, but if you were to ask an Old Testament Israelite, they would probably say, sit down, pour you a cup of tea or meat or whatever they made then, and they would, they would say, let me tell you a story, and they would tell you the story of the Exodus. And so again, the Exodus is going to provide, the reason why it's important for us to understand is because all throughout Scripture, the themes of the Exodus, both the themes, as we'll see today, of bondage and of captivity, and the themes of liberation, of redemption, of deliverance, of freedom, they largely begin here in this book. So today what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of set the stage for this series. We're going to look at first the context of Exodus. What is the Exodus context? Then we're going to explore these themes of captivity and liberation. And it's going to help to kind of set the stage again for, for this book and for this series. We're going to look at, second, the exhausting captivity, the nature of captivity on levels we might not be aware, yet probably sense, hopefully kind of be able to put our finger on something and some things. Uh, and then third, we're going to look at eternal liberation. What is liberation? What's promised? And on what levels? What, what does it look at? What are the different dynamics of liberation? What do we need? So let's pray, and we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for these truths that we find here in this book. Lord, we ask that you would help us to see throughout this series, to, to discern where there are levels of captivity in our life, maybe some that we're acutely aware of, those that are external around us, those that are internal, those that we might not even be aware of. But Lord, in the midst of it, may we constantly be pointed to the liberation that you have promised, the freedom, the life, the, the chains being taken off, so Lord, our souls might be free to you and to life forever. And so Lord, would you guide us this morning? Spirit, would you bring this home where it needs to be brought home to each of our souls? And would you give us hope and a vision of the freedom that is found in Christ? We ask this in his name. Amen. So the Exodus context. So where where are we? We're jumping into this book. I'm going to walk through verses 1 through 22. And and then again, then we're going to look at these themes of liberation and of captivity. So starting in verse 1, we didn't read during the scripture reading, but starting in verse 1, Exodus 1 says, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt, then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. So Exodus, second book of the Bible. First book, Genesis. At the end of Genesis, there Jacob has a son named Joseph and 11 other sons. These are the 12 tribes of Israel. And these tribe, these brothers initially, 
had essentially enslaved their brother Joseph, sent him off to Egypt. They intended it for evil, but then God, at the end, it says famously, God intended it for good, what man had intended for evil, and God supervenes, and he brings all of the brothers who had sent Joseph into captivity in Egypt. Joseph is raised up to the, essentially to become uh, Pharaoh's uh, main confidant, and he becomes essentially almost like a prince over Egypt, and his brothers are brought in, and they're saved and from the famine. And so these nations of Israel are saved. The nation of Israel as a whole is saved in Egypt. And so what's being referred to here is this great redemption that God has brought. What oftentimes is, are, are the effects of the unfaithfulness of our lives, God supervenes, and oftentimes what could bring us to an end, God is faithful, and he saves. It says in verse 7, but... So remember, when we're reading that, we would hear, oh, we remember this, what happened in Genesis, how badly it could have gone, how God intervened. And it says, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. It's very specific language there to be fruitful and to multiply, specifically refers back to Genesis 1. When God has said, if you follow me, if you fear me, then I, you'll be fruitful, you will multiply. In other words, they're flourishing. In other words, they're thriving. And that was for a time. That was then. But now a new day is going to begin here in Exodus. A day of captivity. Continues then in verse 8, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. This new king we'll see in a little bit. His name is, we know him as Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. He didn't know Joseph. The reason why you would think, maybe that's strange. Okay, he just forgot about Joseph. And, and that makes sense that over time and generations that he just forgot him. But this is also very specific language of knowing that we'll see in Exodus. This is language that is throughout the Old Testament, this Hebrew verb yada, which is to know, which is a very intimate knowing. This is usually used for sexual relations to refer to in a marriage, but also it's going to be referring to God's covenantal love for his people. As we'll see in the next chapter, that God hears his people and he knows. In other words, this language of knowing is juxtaposed that Pharaoh doesn't know, he doesn't care. There's no concern. And it's going to be juxtaposed to God's covenantal love that God knows he cares for his people. He wants to free them, whereas Pharaoh seeks to exploit and put them in captivity. Now, what's interesting is we're pretty sure now we know historically who the Pharaoh was at this time, but Pharaoh in the Exodus narrative will never be named. Pharaoh, in fact, we'll see there's another Pharaoh. But he's not named. It's interesting. He's not named, though, because Pharaoh stands for all of the anti-creation, anti-human, anti-flourishing the power of the enemy. Pharaoh here is a paradigm for Satan. Pharaoh here is a paradigm. He stands in for all of the dynamics that work against God's kingdom, that work against God's plan for humanity. Every generation has its unique pharaohs. 
that keep humanity in a state of captivity. Then it says in verse 9, and he said to his people, this Pharaoh, he said, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. There are numerous reasons why Satan schemes against God, his people. But the thing that's consistent is that every time and every day and every generation, Satan actively, the Pharaoh, actively works against God's kingdom, actively works against God's people individually and as a whole. He seeks to destroy many different nefarious motivations, yet it's always the same. The deck is stacked. But says, therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. There are various schemes of Satan to overwhelm, to control, to manipulate, to exploit, to hold captive God's people. It could be temptation. It could be addiction. It could be dependencies. It could be circumstances. It could be, again, societal or, or social kind of systemic dynamics. We're going to explore all of these throughout this series. There are external schemes, things around us. There are internal things within us. Verse 12. This is where the good news, you get a little bit of a silver lining here. It says, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. Here's the thing, and every day, no matter how Satan is at work, no matter how dire circumstances get, no matter how anxious we may be, and how unknown the future may be, how chaotic it may be, there is always hope, because God is always at work. God is always working his redemption. God is always freeing. God is always liberating from captivity, whatever those things may be in our lives. Now, in verse 13 and 14, we're going to come back to this because we're going to kind of start to explore these dynamics. We, we see then this, this classic description of what happens in Egypt to Israel. It says, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and they made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. It was brutal in Egypt's day, this slavery, this bondage, this captivity. Now, what's interesting is because we would... We would look at this and we go, well, then the good news is if we're not in Egypt, if there isn't a pharaoh, if there isn't this kind of external control, then we're safe. Something we're going to come back to, though, in chapter 5 that's very interesting here, that's part of this imagery. In the Hebrew, this description of, of mortar and brick, in chapter 5 we're going to see the famous scene where he has them, he doubles down on their punishment and he mixes it with straw. What's interesting is in the Hebrew... There's only one other place where that description is used, and it's back in the Tower of Babel. 
In other words, what's interesting here is that externally here, they are being forced to use brick and mortar and build for Pharaoh. But what we've already seen in Genesis, and again, anyone who had been reading Exodus would have been familiar with Genesis, and especially in the Hebrew, and they would have remembered there was a theme of us, even when we thought we were free, compelling ourselves, exploiting ourselves to build with brick and mortar in order to build a kingdom for ourselves, in other words... This kind of slavery, this kind of bondage, this kind of captivity can both be external or, as we'll explore a lot in this series, it can actually be internal, where we exploit ourselves. We almost give ourselves to this captivity. And one of the things that we'll explore, I have a, actually, I'm going to go ahead and read this quote. This is going to give a little bit of an idea of where we're going. I actually didn't get it to them, uh, so I don't have this slide. But it's by a philosopher that I've been reading lately, Byung Hol Chan, right? He's Korean-born, German philosopher, just now being translated into English. And he captures some of these dynamics of how in our day we almost auto-exploit ourselves, in ways that we might not even be aware of, which is why as modern people we're so exhausted and burnt out. He says this, he says, in this society of compulsion, our society, now we're almost compulsively running ourselves ragged. He says everyone carries a work camp inside. The labor camp is defined by the fact that one is simultaneously prisoner and guard, victim and perpetrator. One exploits oneself. It means that exploitation is possible even without domination. There is a kind of exploitation spiritually that we experience, and we're going to explore the factors that lead to that, even when there might not be external domination that enforces it. It's external and internal, this kind of bondage. Now, verse 15 to 22, then we have this initial, you know, kind of setting up where we're going to go with Moses next week, but also it sets up some of these, these themes of God's redemption in the midst of this captivity. It says, then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Sifra and the other Pua, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, there were no hospitals, right? It was a birth stool. And if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, he, she shall live. The idea being that sons would be a threat. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, I love this line, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. All right, that's a, that's a spiritual gift of all spiritual gifts, right? So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong, and because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. We're going to see this theme again and again of when we faithfully, when we fear God above all others and we follow him, the blessing and the freedom that comes from that. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. And this is going to set up what will happen next week with the birth of Moses and him being saved when being 
threatened to be thrown into the Nile. So this sets up the beginning of Exodus. The question here as the Israelites are in captivity is how do they find freedom? And we're going to be exploring that throughout the series. Now, because I'm using these terms of captivity and freedom or liberation, the question becomes, what do we mean by these biblically? And so what I want to do is I kind of want to step back and be very clear on how this works in our lives, this idea of captivity, in what sense are we captive? And then second, what is this liberation? So, Number two, what we're going to look at, again, going back to 13 and 14, it says that made their lives bitter. He made them work as slaves in brick and mortar and all kinds of work in the field. They worked, they, uh, in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Uh, captivity and this theme of slavery is complex throughout Scripture. It's a complex theme throughout Scripture. Uh, it captures both an external and an internal reality. In fact, often the external captivity or bondage is meant also to parallel an internal spiritual level of captivity and bondage. And it's meant to give a picture to it. And so what I want to do is it's going to set up, what I want to do is set up some of the themes that we're going to see here in Exodus of captivity. So let me, let me uh, draw it like this. So we have a whiteboard, so you know I'm serious. Uh, and so hopefully on the side you can see this. But here's the way that we as modern people tend to think of ourselves in terms of freedom. I know I've drawn this before, but it's probably been a while. Some of you, this might be new. But we tend to think of ourselves as individuals, right? And we're going through our day. I'm gone. I got some happy days. Some days I'm a little off, right? There I am. And we tend to think of, of our will, and we tend to think... In what sense is our will free? We as modern people tend to think of ourselves as if we want to assert ourselves, if we want to act in life, that merely what we do is we act. We tend to think of ourselves as autonomous, which means it comes from the word for autonomos, which is our own law, that we operate by our own desires, we operate by our own impulses, we operate essentially, and oftentimes in the modern world, just thinking, if I desire it, then I can go move on that, and my will in that way is free, if I just act as I please. The question is, and this is what Exodus causes us to question, in what sense are we truly free? In what sense are we able to every day just act on our will? Are we liberated? In the Bible, we see main themes that come up, and we will have a slide up here with these, but we tend to think of these in terms of the flesh, the world, and the devil. And all of these, the Bible says, are actually influencing us at all times. And at all times, they're affecting our will. So, what I put here is that the self, the flesh, we can think of self, society, and Satan, and the flesh, we're going to see a picture of this in Israel. We're going to see a picture of this, especially as we get later when Israel is liberated into the wilderness, we're going to see the grumbling of their heart, their unbelief. In other words, the flesh are the things that are like our temptations. I'm not going to write all this out. Our temptations, our lust, our desires... Our dependencies, our addictions, our idolatry. It, it was interesting recently, I was uh, 
reviewing a book for someone uh, by Stanford, uh, gosh, he's a, what is he, evolutionary biologist, uh, Robert Sapolsky, uh, probably one of the leading evolutionary biologists in America, and he just released a book actually called Determinism. And, and in the book, he claims that actually also our biology, our neurobiology specifically for him, uh, so impacts and determines our actions that, in fact, we don't have any true kind of freedom. So even right now, evolutionary biologists are making the claim, the top one in our nation is making the claim that our biology so influences us that in what sense are we actually free? Then we have as well... At a societal level, these are the idols, the traditions, the, the beliefs. We, we have beliefs like individualism. We, we are emotivists. We act based upon our feelings and our emotions. We discern truth through those things. These are all societal kind of defaults or assumptions. We have things like consumerism. We easily go into debt. You might be old enough to remember a day before we were people who just quickly went into debt for everything. How does that affect our lives? We could even say that in our day, we have to brand ourselves, and we have to almost commodify our identity in order to take place part in the marketplace. How much of our lives are driven by the algorithms every day? There are many layers to how society or how the world drives our will. Lastly, we have then Satan. Because you could say in some ways the flesh is your internal. The world, you could say external. It's a little oversimplified. But then you could say that Satan, the Pharaoh, is always using both of those dynamics, exploiting them by giving half-truths, by giving lies, by questioning truth. And so there are always these doubts in our mind and, and kind of messaging that we're hearing. Again, the question becomes, see, this is what the Bible essentially teaches throughout. That because of these different dynamics that are so influencing our lives at all times, it questions again and again, in what sense do you have a free will? This is why Martin Luther wrote a famous book called The Bondage of the Will. That in fact, all of us as humans in this world, our wills are in bondage. They're captive. We need liberation. So the question is again, in what sense are we free? Now, you might be saying right now, like, wow, pastor, thanks for painting a rosy picture. Can't wait to watch football this afternoon, right? Uh, the reason why we must look at it, and this is what Exodus does. Exodus takes these themes seriously. Scripture as a whole takes these things seriously. That these are the dynamics in our lives that if we truly want to find freedom, if we truly want to find liberation, we must identify these things, address these things. But here's the thing, finally, the good news is that that's exactly what Exodus will do. 
That's exactly what the gospel of Jesus Christ does. So last, we're going to look at eternal liberation. Again, verse 20, it says, God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. We have this silver lining, and we're going to see in chapter 2, as the people cry out to God, he hears them and he responds, and eventually he's going to free them. He's going to send Moses to Pharaoh. He's going to overcome the Egyptian gods in the plagues, and then he's going to send them out in the, through the Red Sea, and he's going to deliver his people. The good news is, for as stark as this could seem, also we have an even greater liberation and deliverance that comes. God is a God of liberation, but how? How does God free us? Well, God entered the world, and he went face to face with Pharaoh. God entered the world, and he went face to face with Pharaoh. This is why Jesus, what he's going to do is, uh, right after the birth narratives in the Synoptic Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what Jesus will do is immediately go into the wilderness. What Jesus does in the, in the wilderness is he essentially reenacts or relives all of the temptations that Israel will face in the wilderness. When Israel fails and they grumble and they, and they essentially almost make complete wreck of the salvation that God has given them, Jesus conquers. Jesus is faithful where Israel was unfaithful. And then right after... There's this scene with the devil where he goes toe-to-toe with him, and then he conquers the devil, and he defeats him, and then what does he do in Luke's gospel? He walks right into the temple, and he reads a passage that explains what he is doing and what he has done. It says this in Luke 4, it says, And he came to Nazareth, and where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll. Can you imagine Jesus just gets up, says that, and he rolls up the scroll, it says he gives it back to the attendant, and he sat down. Everyone's looking at him like, what? And he says, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. It's kind of the ultimate mic drop, right? What Jesus is saying is with the coming of me, that liberation, that freedom, that loosening of the chains and that loosening of the bonds has come, and I will do it. Now, the question is, how does Jesus do this? Well, first, Jesus came in the flesh, And so Jesus, instead of now, only we have, we now have a Savior who comes and he conquers Satan. He conquers our sin. He conquers our debt. He pays it. He redeems us so that sin and shame and guilt no longer have the final say. And then it says that he, then the Spirit comes. I almost always draw the Spirit and it looks bad. So that's the Spirit coming down and the Spirit's going to give us a new heart He gives us a new flesh, and so we are given, sorry, up here, a heart of flesh. You see in Jeremiah, in Ezekiel, and we're told that we are given a new nature, a nature now that knows that we are children of God who have the affection and the love of God. We are given the wisdom of God. We are given the power and the obedience of God. And then it says that then Jesus is a new king, unlike Pharaoh who doesn't exploit, but he saves and he liberates. 
and he puts, places us in a new kingdom with a new perspective, eternity, hope, with a new purpose of living life free before the God of the universe, and that being true for eternity, placing us amongst a new people with one another where we, we contend for one another and fight for one another's freedom. And so Jesus comes to liberate us. And here's the thing, all of these things we're going to be discussing, I believe in our day there are things that are surfacing that this exodus is just this timeless wisdom that just cuts right to the heart of what's going on. And I think we are in a day where we will realize we need just as much of a supernatural deliverance as they did in Israel's day. that we are in a day where we need God to show up in miraculous ways. And so throughout this series, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be seeking God because what Jesus says is, are you exhausted? Are you exhausted by the captivity of our day? He says in Matthew 11, come to me all who are weary, all who are heavy laden. I will give you rest for your souls. I will give you freedom. I will take off the shackles. And Exodus is going to provide the template of how he does that and point to that ultimate liberation in Christ. Now, what's interesting about this, this is why Genesis, or Genesis, Galatians 5 will actually talk about us as servants or slaves of Christ. Because ultimately, it's not a question of if you will serve and be held captive to something, to someone. The question is, who will you be held captive by? And what Jesus gives us is he says, I will liberate you by giving you someone better to be captivated by. And so all this series, we'll see how Jesus gives us that new liberation. We'll be captivated increasingly by Christ and seeing where we see glimpses of him throughout Exodus. So throughout this series, we'll explore various ways we are held captive. Some of them obvious, some of them not so much but would discover the liberation God promises his people if they'll turn and trust him. So a few things. This semester, uh, till Easter, Easter is the last day of March. Uh, this semester, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be examining our, ourselves. We're going to be looking at ourselves and exploring where is this captivity in my life? Where is this coming in around me? And then also we're going to be we're going to be seeking liberation, but we're also going to be looking around us and going, where is there captivity all around me? And what is the role that God has for me and the lives of others around me to bring that liberation, to bring that freedom? Liberated people liberate people. They don't just keep it to themselves. We're going to deepen our burden for those captive around us. We're going to do a few worship nights. The themes of those worship nights are essentially going to be contending for the captives. Going before God, as we see over and over again in Exodus, where God's people in the face of this captivity, they cry out to him both for their own freedom and also will be crying out for those who are captive around us. Seeking God to, to do what only he can do. We'll have equipping classes. We're going to do a seven-week series. First, in the next few weeks, we're actually going to do a financial workshop, which if there's any area probably that we most acutely could feel that needing liberation, it could be in our finances, so it actually fits the theme very well. But then we're going to be doing a seven-week 
series where right now the working title is For the Captives, where we're going to be understanding what is the captivity of our day and how do we communicate the gospel to those around us in the midst of it. The application for today, the application would be to begin, if you're not, praying. I think we'll see throughout this series that the most important thing that we can do in our day is to be praying and crying out to the Lord, to be asking Him to give us insight into where we are held captive and in bondage and we don't realize it, but also to be crying out to Him to deliver us and those around us. So I encourage you, if you haven't made that time every day to be praying, to go before the Lord and go, Lord, where, where, do I, where am I not aware that I'm captive? Where am I not aware that I'm in bondage? Free me. Help me see it. This semester till Easter, our focus will be on examining ourselves and seeking liberation because true liberation from captivity is found in one place, being captivated by Christ. Seek him. He will hear you and he will liberate you and those around you from captivity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we ask that in the midst of this series, Lord, as we march through this narrative, as we march through the story of your redemption and deliverance of your people, of Israel out of Egypt. Lord, would we see that it's not such a different or ancient, just some far off in the past story, but that it very much speaks to our day. And Lord, that in, in the midst of it, you would help us to see where we are in captivity. Lord, where we need liberation. And Lord, would you throughout this series give us that liberation? Would you free us? Would you remove the chains and the bonds? And Lord, will we be a people who have a burden for those around us? And would we seek to pro pro proclaim liberty to the captives all around us? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.